This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. If you have a pet at home, you realize that there is a unique connection with them. They do become one of your children. They just tell you what they want or need in a different manner. But that connection goes much deeper, according to renowned veterinarian Dr. Nicholas Dodman of Tufts University. He has authored several books on animals and animal behavior, including the New York Times bestseller, The Dog Who Loved Too Much. The latest book, which is out now, is called Pets on the Couch. And Dr. Dobman joins us right now. Doctor, great to have you on the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. I mean, this is, I I have been a dog owner, you know, off and on now for uh, probably the last 15 years of my life. Uh, And it is an important area for you. It's an important area for millions and millions of people around the globe uh, about really just kind of understanding our pets a little better. Yes, I think that's true. And, and you, know, you said there's a lot of people have pets. That's true. Half of the American, American homes uh, have a dog. And more like two-thirds have a pet, so that would include cats too. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, and there's 300 million of us and who knows, 100 million homes. So there's a, lot, a huge number of people own pets, interact yeah. with pets, and have close relationships or not. What is interesting is, is that you chronicle how a lot of our pets – uh, our four-legged friends have a lot of the same medical issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And, and it kind of leads me back to something I saw in the notes from the publisher is that uh, it was said that, that the book was inspiring, fascinating, but also heartbreaking. And, and the heartbreaking part obviously goes to some of these medical issues that they're dealing with. Well, that's right. Um, yeah, there are some parts in there that uh, would stir emotion. I, I talked to somebody the other day that said when they read about the situation that I rescued my dog Rust, uh, Jasper from. Um, she said, I was just reading it and just crying. I mean, because it was a tragic situation. And, but the good news is he's sitting right next to me now, and he's uh, landed on his feet in a home where he gets lots of walks, lots of freedom, and he is allowed on the couch, and he can now bark when he wants to. And, you know, a happy ending. But what, yeah. what happened to him? Well, he was kept in a crate like 23 hours a day. Right wasn't fed on a regular basis. Um, when I acquired him, he weighed 45 pounds. He now weighs 85, and that's, he's not fat. This is him at his proper weight. He's you know, got a tucked abdomen, and he runs like the wind. But the 45 pounds was him, you know, effectively in a sort of Belson-type situation. He was uh, ravenous all the time, nearly took your fingers off. To, when, first of all, when I had him, and you offered him a treat, just in case it disappeared, he'd snap like an alligator. Um, but I managed to acquire him from that situation because he was so hungry that um, when he rare, on his rare trips out of his crate, he ate a bunch of Tampax, uh, oh, threw up some, and three got stuck. And the vet charged like offered $5,000 to do the surgery to remove these offending objects. She couldn't afford it. She was going to put him down. And we heard about it through our daughter. Uh, who's now at UPenn, as a matter of fact, uh, mm. in the medical school uh, doing an, a residency. So daughter Keisha said, you've got to help this dog. And so we ended up calling the girl and saying, look, we'll do the surgery for free. Uh, 
as long as you promise you will let us find him a decent home. She reluctantly agreed. We did the surgery. Jasper recovered. And due to the arrangement we had, we were looking around for a home for him, but nothing was right. You know, people yeah. were away at work. He was going to be left alone. And actually, it turns out the best home for him was with us. So here he stays. And, and unfortunately, that ends up being the story for, for thousands of, uh, of animals, uh, not only around the United States, but around the globe, that, that they, they need either A, rescued from a, a very bad situation, or B, they're out on their own and, and basically fending for themselves and, and need a home. That's exactly right. So, you know, it, it's a tough life for some of them, and, and some of them are just uh, misunderstood by their owners. So I hope the book helps to uh, clear up for some people, you know, what their dog is doing and, you know, why it's acting out and what they can do about it. But the, the, the book is peppered with all kinds of stories. I mean, you could kind of read it and, and weep uh, and, or, or enjoy um, hearing the stories about the animals I've encountered over the last 35 years as a behaviorist. Um, but actually, there's a theme that goes through the book, too, which is there is but one medicine. Um, there isn't human medicine and veterinary medicine, that the two of them are intimately uh, linked together, that things that happen to people can happen to pets. Emotional issues that affect uh, people uh, can also affect pets, and even psychiatric issues that we get, uh, things like um, you know, complex partial seizures that produce weird behaviors, you know, happens to people, happens to pets. Uh, Post-traumatic stress happens to people, happens to pets. Right. Obsessive compulsive disorder, same. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. We're joined by Dr. Nicholas Dodman of uh, Tufts University and author of the book Pets on the Couch. You may be very well a pet owner out there and and may have seen something with your animal that, that you would like to bring up. You're more than welcome to do so. Again, the number to give us a call is 844-942-7866. What is interesting, and we'll go through some of these, each chapter is really a look at at a different problem uh, that, that, that pets could be going through. Uh, what I found interesting is that things like obsessive compulsive behavior, PTSD, these are things that, that pets deal with as well. That's right. So, in fact, you know, I've actually used almost as a Bible uh, in the course of my studies over the years the Human Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry, which is the psychiatrist's guide to diagnosing um, human psychiatric issues and going through the various chapters about anxiety disorders, including generalized anxiety, um, phobias, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, Tourette syndrome. You know, for every one that's in the human psychiatric manual, there is an equivalent in the animal world. The possible exception of schizophrenia and uh, bipolar disease. 844-942-7866. Join us in our conversation with Dr. Nicholas Dobbin talking about his book, Pets on the Couch. Uh, depression is one that you go into as well, but but that, to me, is maybe not as surprising as some of the other ones because, I, I mean, I, I think I've seen that in, in other animals, and, and I think maybe that is, is a little bit easier to see in, in pets than some of these other issues. Yeah, absolutely. But there are two types of depression. One of them is called uh, state depression, which animals certainly suffer from, that when they're bereaved of a, a beloved animal friend 
or of a person that they're attached to. Maybe the person moves away, they pass on, whatever, and they find themselves without that person, without that other dog friend or whatever. They can show all the signs of a state depression, which sometimes with a little help from their friends like me, we can bounce them out of that because we've encountered it several times. We know things that can be done to help to shorten that period of grief and make them feel a bit happier and get them back on the road. But the one thing that hasn't really been identified yet, uh, not saying it doesn't exist, but is the trait depression. So people suffer from, you know, when you talk about a depressive personality, they're people who oscillate between feeling, you know, relatively normal and then all of a sudden for uh, sometimes apparently no reason, they go into the depths of despair and depression which eventually shifts and then they're back to being normal. So they're oscillating backwards and forwards from normal. That's called monopolar depression, but it's a character trait. I've not actually seen hmm. trait depression in animals, only state depression. How important is it for pet owners to at least consider these things when they are thinking about adding a dog to their family or adding a cat to their family or, or some other pet? Well, there's certainly a lot of considerations that you need to uh, certainly carefully chew over or think about before acquiring a pet because a lot of people acquire a dog um, or cat for the wrong reason. You know, sometimes you know, the, the Christmas puppies that are given to people who really don't have the time to care for it. I mean, it's a, you know, speaking, speak, speaking of animals, I just heard one in the background. Yeah, that's my cat Griswold who's got the loudest voice that you could possibly imagine, who, but he happens to be deaf. Oh, really? You know, deaf people always talk very loud. Yes, and that's true. And my stone deaf, and he talks very loud. <laughs> no, that, that would explain it. Okay, that would explain I, apo it. I apologize for interrupting you. Go ahead. No, that's okay. So, as a matter of fact, um, you know, there's a, it really it's important to match um, a person with a pet. I mean, at the moment, it's done by sort of rule of thumb, you know, finger to the wind. People try their best to say, well, this one would probably suit you in your circumstances, but... I am working with a, an eminent researcher at um, University of Pennsylvania Veterinary School uh, down there in Philly, um, Dr. James Serple. Um, and him and I have both done studies looking at the interaction of people and pets and the influence an owner can have on a pet and sort of the compatibility and, uh, and lack thereof. So we have an ongoing study now um, which people can look at if they want to go to the website drdodman.org and that's d-r-d-o-d-m-a-n dot org or dot com and that will bring you to the study which people can look at it's all about dogs and they can decide if they want to participate um, but the idea is like um, in the end from the results of this study if people go to a shelter for example to adopt a dog and they mm -hmm. fill in 20 questions um, about themselves that we think will be able to predict the kind of dog that would best suit their needs. Because oh. you could evaluate the dog behavior by a questionnaire that Dr. Serple came up with himself, so-called canine um, behavior and research questionnaire. Um, the acronym is like CBARQ, uh, C-B-A-R-Q. And, and that's been validated as a good measure of canine sort of personality backslash behavior. And if you find that a certain human personality type is not suited to this particular type of dog personality, then you know, we think we can come up with a simple app that will help people to 
be a ma- it's almost like a match.com you know for yeah. do- adopting a dog so yeah. you put the right personalities together and you're right people sometimes adopt a dog for the wrong reason or they don't understand the consequences um there's always the right person for every dog it doesn't mean you don't adopt a dog but right. for example um if you spend long hours away from home you go to a shelter and you feel sorry for a dog who's cowering in the corner oh sympathy good good stuff but in in that sense that dog's going to be very needy and you're not at home a lot so you might end up on the receiving end of the condition known as separation anxiety right well it's interesting because i i i've had a uh a golden retriever in the past, and now a chocolate lab, and I, just on the being the you know the type of dog that that would match with a person. Golden retrievers are you know obviously, and and labs are, are the same. They're so energetic and exciting that if you're somebody that you know is not as mobile or or you don't exercise, that could be a big problem for the dog in in a in a period of time. That's right. I I wrote another book a few years back called The Well Adjusted Dog and. Um, I discussed the, you know, for example, the energy um, requirements uh, of dogs, so that people could, you know, look at them, and I classed them into the runners. You know, dogs like um, German Shorthaired Pointers and uh, a number of the very athletic uh, hound dogs or sporting, but dogs of sporting breeds who really need a lot of exercise. Right. And you can't adopt a dog like that and then live in an apartment and go on a half-mile walk on leash every day and still expect the dog to be in tip-top sort of mental uh, form. On the other hand, uh, there are sort of average exercise requirement dogs, and then I describe the couch potatoes, the dogs who really don't need a lot of exercise. So if you yourself are immobile or living in a pretty confined place or a big city, um, one of these low-energy dogs, and curiously, a lot of people get it completely wrong, it's the larger dogs who are, you know, if you get a Newfoundland, you know, they, yep. they, they can be very friendly, but their exercise requirements, um, they're more like a throw rug. You know, you can <laughs> you just have it in your living room and enjoy <laughs> the company, but it doesn't really need a lot of exercise. And But people go the other way. They say, I've got a little apartment, so I'm going to get a little dog. I'll get a Jack Russell. Yeah. Well, that, that dog is, you know, so some people call them holy terrorists because they're yep. it, a very high-energy dog. They really need a lot of outputs and outlets. Otherwise, they, they just drive you crazy in a small apartment because they're not getting the exercise they need. One of the interesting and, and I think maybe even a little bit of scary topics that you bring up is the fact that, that animals actually do deal with Alzheimer's. Yes, that's um, pretty well established now. I remember I was in on the very early stages of that, and there was a company who was developing the first Alzheimer drug for dogs, and you know, people say, oh, well, it's just them getting old. Well, it's not. It's that people can, you know, be successful ages. You know, they show signs of age, but they age successfully. Dogs can do the same. But Alzheimer's is a disease um, which is characterized by certain changes in the brain, um, you know, amyloid protein plaques and um, neurofibrillary tangles of a protein called tau, which seem to gum up the works. And exactly the same brain changes occur in dogs and cats and other species when they develop the Alzheimer, you know, which is really disease-type aging. And, and like in people, the diagnosis is really one of ruling out, and you know, the definitive diagnosis is really made post-mortem. 
844-942-7866 is the number. If you'd like to jump in and ask a question of our guest, Dr. Nicholas Dodman, author of the book Pets on the Couch. We're talking about medical and emotional issues that uh, that our pets deal with. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. I'd be very interested to know that uh, we talk in, in medicine in dealing with, with people and issues about sometimes the fact that heredity can be an issue. Is there an element of heredity in, in some of these issues with our pets as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thought we had, which was back in the early 2000s, is we know that these um, obsessive-compulsive disorders, for example, like a dog who licks his leg to the point of causing sores and ulcers and does it in anxious situations, so-called acral lick, or dogs that, um, in one case, like they Doberman pinches, will nurse on their flanks and sometimes cause a lesion there, and it's kind of bizarre and mm-hmm. out of place. Um, we we know that they it travels, you know, as it does in cats in family lines. You can you can plot out a genealogy and you can see this condition tracking, you know, sometimes with a you know a, a, a pattern of inheritance that you might call dominance with. Uh, incomplete penetrance. So, yeah, so we wanted to look at it and we wanted to find the genes that caused it. And we actually found the first gene is um, uh, um, something called neural cadherin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it expresses itself in the brain in areas that are relevant. And we published that in um, Molecular Psychiatry, which is one of the Nature Journals a few years back, I think like 2010. First gene to cause at least set the animal up for expressing um, compulsive disorder. That gene is subsequently confirmed in a different breed, the Belgian Malinois, with a different compulsive behavior, in this case running in circles. Um, and, and then finally it was confirmed also in people with OCD that this gene is affected. And it was sort of partially shown by a study that we were involved in with NIH and, partial, um, and actually more completely and more recently by a group from um, South Africa, who said, yes, this CDH2 or neural cadherin gene is involved in generating or setting a human being up for it. We then discovered other genes, serotonin genes, uh, published that, um, that seem to affect the, the severity. So if you've got the two genes, one is the susceptibility and the other is the severity, these two genes work in concert um, if they're awry to produce very severe forms of the condition. And we've also been looking at the dog autism model, um, which I'm sure there's other breeds, but we've studied the bull terrier, mm-hmm. and we found glitches that seem to be traveling on the X chromosome. So we may actually be looking at uh, a type of fragile X syndrome, and there's also a suspicion of something awry on uh, canine chromosome four. We're currently looking at that. The results um, should be out any day now, as a matter of fact, um, with a very uh, sophisticated, you know, complete um, scan of the genome, and we'll be looking specifically these areas to substantiate the exact involvement of these uh, suspicious loci. So we should be able to come up with more. But yeah, there's lots of other things. People yeah. are beginning to look all over now with these genome-wide association studies, which is not a bad first step. But then you need to get more detailed after that. So lots of things set an animal up um, that couple them with impaired environment, you know, out pops the genie from the Pandora's box kind of thing to mix my metaphors. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you also take time in, in the book to, to discuss 
uh, pets and, and the bad dreams that they have. And, and you know, you'll see that from time to time in dogs. I haven't seen it in, in, in other pets, uh, cats or, 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 or the like, uh, where, you know, the dog is asleep and you know that the, the mind is working and you can see the twitching and, and going on and, and how much of a concern that should be for, uh, for pet owners. Well, there's a kind of normal version of that. So um, in the uh, REM stage of sleep, the dreaming phase of sleep, you know, dogs will be able to activate the muscles that are under sort of very fine um, motor control. You know, um, eyes can flicker and uh, eyeballs are twitching backwards and forwards and paws can twitch backwards and forwards and there can even be vocalizations and muzzle movements and so on. And it's kind of normal, and you just know the dog is dreaming. And if you do an EEG at that time, you will see um, a brainwave pattern, which is pretty much the same as what would happen in a human who is dreaming. So, yeah, they dream. That's normal. But sometimes this process goes awry, and either due to a partial seizure or what's called a REM behavior disorder, you can have an animal uh, who not only... It, first of all, does that in a very extreme form. I mean, the movement is really exaggerated. I mean, it's practically writhing. Some will actually jump up and in what appears to be a blind fury of uh, really not quite conscious, almost like night terrors in a child, yeah. will run around and perhaps attack a blanket or another dog or some such. So I tell a few stories about these dogs and how we deal with them and how we try and decide, which is not always easy, whether to treat with an anticonvulsant, in other words, if it's a sort of seizure-type disorder, yeah. or whether to treat with um, a Valium-type drug, which is pretty standard uh, treatment for um, REM behavior disorder, which, of course, occurs in people as well. Yeah, you may have uh, seen something in your pet. You're more than welcome to give us a call and uh, join in at 844-WHARTON. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, you mentioned medicines, and, and I guess... You know, there are certain uh, things that do have to be treated with medicine, but I, I wonder how much of the relationship between the the pet owner and the pet can alleviate some of these problems at times. Well, that's a good point, and, and it, it's true. So if we take our old friend separation anxiety, which affects quite a few dogs who've been what I call through the school of hard knocks. They've been bounced around from home to home or been through a shelter, and they, you know, they've lost self-confidence. Uh, they, they're sort of not very independent. If they go into a home with a person who is you know, more sort of positive and sort of confident, and they end up feeling they can rely on them, but not a sympathetic person, a person who's just sort of more matter-of-fact, like, hey, don't be silly. Okay, you wait, you know, more, more positive they can actually get better over time, which actually happened with my uh, other dog, Rusty. So he had separation anxiety when I got him. I didn't even enact one of my programs. I just, mm. my wife and I are sort of fairly um, straightforward people. And, you know, he, he just got to understand, oh, this happens. And now we can leave him. We try not to because we don't like to upset him. But we can go away for, you know, a few hours at a time, you know, even go down and see a Red Sox game. Sorry <laughs> to mention Red Sox. Um, and, you know, get back, um, and he's, he's okay. I don't like to leave him for five or six hours, and he rarely gets left for that long, but certainly, you know, we have a life to lead, and, we, you know, my wife has a horse at a barn. She has to go up there and look after the horse, and when I was full-time working, I would have to be at work, so, you know, they had to get used to being left for three hours. But 
the other side of that penny is you can adopt a dog with the tendency for or existing uh, separation anxiety. And if you are overly empathetic, we believe, you know, too caring, you know, too much of a good thing. Yeah. Sometimes you can feed into that problem and make them even more nervous by your own anxiety. And these are things we hope to establish in the study that I'm doing with Dr. Serpil at UPenn. We hope to straighten this out um, and make it not just a surmise, not just an experience that we, we report and see frequently, but actually scientific fact. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.